My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Join me for the rough hours, Christine Benz. Christine, introduce yourself to the audience and to me. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? What are you doing currently? Sure. Thanks, Michael, for having me on, first of all. And thanks to everyone for joining us for this. I have been at Morningstar uh, for 30 years, which makes me a little bit of a dinosaur in terms of sticking with the same employer. But I've had a lot of interesting roles. I was part of our investment research group for many years, researching mutual funds, writing analyses on mutual funds, running data on mutual funds, and eventually headed up our U.S. mutual fund analyst team. But along the way, became much more interested in matters of financial planning and retirement planning. So shifted my career in that direction. I went through the CFP program, the Certified Financial Planner program, and got a good download of information through that avenue and um, have been kind of toiling in the financial planning and especially lately, the retirement planning space, because there's just so much to discuss in the realm of, of retirement planning. I think accumulation is fairly straightforward if you invest in something semi-sane and have a reasonably stock heavy posture throughout your savings years and you have a decent savings rate, you'll probably be okay. Retirement is just inherently a lot more complicated. And frankly, for me as a researcher, just a much richer vein to explore. There's a lot of different directions I want to go with this, but I am curious, given that you've been in Morningstar for as long as you have, and everyone yeah. I think knows Morningstar for their star ratings. Has the way that Morningstar as a, as a company, kind of broadly speaking, has the, um, the analytical approach, the way that funds are analyzed, has that evolved or changed over time? Or are these dynamics that you're rating funds off of, you know, fairly consistent? Well, it definitely has changed and evolved. So you mentioned the star rating. That is probably the best known tool that we have. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the star rating is, you know, and I understandable because we live in a wor world where, you know, a five-star restaurant or a four-star movie or whatever system you're using usually means better. It means like, go do it. In the case of our fund star rating, it's just a backward looking snapshot of risk and reward, how a fund has balanced risk and reward relative to its category peers. And so it's not meant to be forward looking. We have a complementary rating system that is analyst driven. It's It incorporates what we think of as, as forward-looking measures in an attempt to give people a sense of what funds and exchange-traded funds they should be investing in. So the medalist rating, the more qualitative rating, that is the one that people should anchor on if they're looking for what our best ideas are, as well as what, what we think people should avoid. And it's important to note, you know, the inputs. Performance is one barely minor input into that forward-looking rating because past performance, we all know, isn't an especially predictive data point. Instead, we put a heavy weighting on cost because all of our data points to the value of cost as being probably the most predictive measure in terms of whether a fund will succeed or fail relative to its peers in the future. And then we look at other things like the, you know, manager tenure and the consistency of the strategy and so forth. So you and I both know that the key disclosure, past performance is not in the yeah. results. Although I will say two things about that. Um, it's interesting because that the term that's 100% valid except momentum as a factor is past performance. And that may be being indicative of future results. But there's also, you can argue, maybe a meaner version aspect of past 
results, right? I mean, I see, you may have seen some of these studies. They call it the Morningstar curse, right? The, the kind of yeah. five, the, the five-star funds over the last three, five years tend to be in the bottom decile the next three, five years. Those that were in the bottom decile last three, five years tend to be in the top. There's kind of a mean reversion aspect to or cycle dynamic that comes to that uh, side of things. Is there anything in your research that suggests that mean reversion, the idea of laggards turning to leaders and leaders turning to laggards, that actually generates alpha more than what's happening in the here and now? I know that my colleagues have looked at this issue and definitely, you know, what you're saying is a phenomenon that we have seen in our research. So a lot of times what you see is that when a fund has performed really well relative to its peers, well, it's taking some risks that have been rewarded but then may eventually not be rewarded in the future. So a great example of that would be the, you know, the fixed income fund, the bond fund, where the manager has a lot of active bets and maybe is tilting toward lower quality credits. And, you know, this is really common tilt and active fixed income. Well, you see periods, long periods where that will be rewarded. So the fund is getting paid extra in terms of interest because it's delving into lower quality Credits, And then you'll have periods where that will completely mean revert overnight. So think of like, the you know, uh, beginning of the pandemic four years ago, where everything went into risk off mode instantaneously. So definitely it's a phenomenon that we see in our data, which is a key reason. You know, when I see the fund with the, the performance where everything's lining up over the past you know, three, five and 10 year periods where we've got top percentile rankings or top decile rankings or whatever it is, that's usually not place where I'm putting my additional funds at the, at that point in time. I, I probably, you know, would be using rebalancing to strip back on those positions. So our, our data very much do support what you're saying, that we see that mean reversion pattern. We see that risks that have been, that, that the fund has been taking oftentimes, you know, come back to, to bite it later on. Which is, I, I think, quite frustrating if you're in the industry, because you and I both know wholesalers love to show the five-star funds. It's, mm. I mean, nothing closes a sale quite like a chart and quite like a star rating. And and you can argue that's consistent with why most uh, investors, allocators underperform. Uh, investor returns tend to be worse uh, because they're basically chasing and they like the, the the confidence of up and to the right and uh, and those five stars. Yeah, no, and I love that you referenced our investor returns. People may not be familiar with them, but it's a set of data points we have that are meant to capture the average investor's experience in a fund, dollar-weighted returns, basically. So we're looking at when the flows go into a fund, when they leave a fund. And what we see is exactly that pattern that you referenced, that especially with those really hot performers, you know, I would say ARK Innovation is a terrific recent example where assets flooded in when the the strategy was about to in, encounter a, round, a, a rough spell. And so assets flow in and then performance drops off, they flow out. We see this again and again. It's like rinse, repeat. And we tend to see it in more narrowly focused categories. So investment types that are more specialized, more focused. That's where we see that hot money flowing in and out, unfortunately, in, in opportune times. And what we see is that when we compare investor returns to the fund's total returns, which assume sort of a buy and hold or they do assume a buy and hold pattern, what we see is that investors undermine their own results with those poor timing decisions. 
We also see, though, when we look at less volatile categories, so I would say any sort of multi-asset category like the balanced funds or target date funds, we see a much more benevolent pattern where investors, due to any number of factors, just tend to stay the course. They add their money. A lot of times with a target date fund, they're investing through the, in the context of a 401k plan, for example, where their dollar cost averaging. What we see is that investors tend to capture very much of the fund's return because they're just sort of investing on cruise control, which turns out to be a great way to do it rather than gravitating to the thing that's been hot in the recent past. It, it is one of the maddening aspects from an industry perspective in that as much as people claim to be long-term investors, they seem to only want to buy based on the short-term tops. Well, absolutely. And we saw that, you know, with a lot of the armchair investors who entered the market and kind of that speculative frenzy that went on in, you know, 2020, 2021, where you had a lot of newbie investors. What, what gets me down is when you have professional investors who have been doing this, maybe not as long as I have or we have, but when you have professional investors who just don't bother to push back on the idea that, well, they're probably, you know, that they are selling this idea that this past performance is going to continue. And we all know that even really great strategies have rough patches. And usually, you know, one of the things I like about, I, I own some active funds and passive in my portfolio, but if I have an active fund that's underperforming, well, I know the managers well because I, you know, am in touch with our analyst team. And that's usually when I'm a buyer and I'm stripping back on positions after they've performed really well because we just do see this pattern again and again. Yeah, I often say it, you know, the role of a portfolio manager in communications to to explain why a strategy works when it works, most more importantly, explain why it doesn't work when it doesn't work, right? Because that's really a function of sort of the cycle environment. We're going to get into the retirement side, but I'm curious, let's kind of tease a little bit more on the investor return side. ETFs are are kind of an interesting vehicle because there's a lot of studies that suggest that investor returns end up being actually pretty poor with ETFs relative to mutual funds. A large part of that is because they're priced second by second. So there's a temptation, right, for investors to overtrade versus a mutual fund that once a day, I think IBD had a had a study on this. They looked at an S&P mutual fund, S&P 500 mutual fund, same expense as an S&P 500 ETF. And the mutual fund ended up having better investor returns than the ETF. How has the ETF explosion changed the way that you think people think about markets and think about uh, having a, a, a real long-term view? Yeah, it, the, the point you made about ETFs relative to traditional mutual funds was something that Jack Bogle would often rail about one of the reasons why he was not especially supportive of Vanguard's decision to move into that space. His view was that it was just going to be too tempting for investors to take advantage of the intraday trading ability. The nice thing, the sort of happy trend that I've observed in the ETFs space is that advisors seem to be moving their clients' clients' portfolios into ETFs for mostly the right reasons, which is the tax efficiency benefit. So they are not taking advantage of that intraday trading. They're using ETFs to buy and hold, but also are using ETFs to capture their better long-term tax efficiency relative to traditional mutual funds, even traditional index mutual funds. You see some tax efficiency benefits. So I think that the idea that ETFs are mainly being used by traders is 
our data would suggest otherwise, that advisors are using them to build long st- long-term strategic portfolios. They're not day trading them. And, and then investors mostly aren't either. So you said earlier, accumulation uh, is easy, certainly. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's really easy when you have NVIDIA, uh, my favorite stock of all time. But but the but the divesting part is where I want to focus uh, the conversation, because I do think it's true that most people probably don't realize between longevity and rising cost of capital and other cycles that it's more than just how much you enter retirement with. It's about how much you spend after that withdrawal rates. So you had put a piece out and did a study on this, how rising interest rates affect your retirement plan. I shared in the nest. Yeah, this point that you put on uh, portfolio implications on the seismic shift. And because I have a flair for the dramatic, I put that seismic shift in the space same. Okay, first of all, lay out uh, what's the objective of that study? Why did uh, you, uh, your team, want to put it out? Yeah, so we've annually been putting out this research on safe withdrawal rate, figuring out how much you can spend during your retirement years, whether it's, you know, 25, 30, 40 years, 50 years, if you're a fire person. It's arguably the most vexing problem in all of personal finance, in my view, because you are planning around so many unknowable variables, which you just referenced, Michael, several of them. You don't know how long you'll live. You don't know how the markets will behave. You don't know what inflation will run over your time horizon. And so you're constructing a portfolio and creating a drawdown plan when you really are quite unsure about what might happen in the future. And of course, we have future, uh, we have past returns that we can look at to help guide our decision making. And that's where the 4% guideline came from, where it looked back on market history and said, okay, what if you hit it exactly wrong and retired into the worst conceivable market environment? That is the William Bengen research that underpins the 4% guideline. And Bengen said, okay, so if you retired in kind of that late 60s period over modern market history, that would have been the worst time to retire where you had a bad market, bad bad equity market in 73, 74. You had rising inflation. You had rising interest rates in response to rising inflation. He focused on that time period and came up with, okay, if you used 4% as a starting withdrawal amount, that would have been sustainable over that whole 30-year time horizon. So past returns, past history is a, is a, a beginning, we think, when looking at what's a safe withdrawal rate. But we think it's valuable to incorporate the current environment. So where are we with equity valuations? Where are we with fixed income yields? When we first did this study back in 2022, a lot was looking pretty grim for new retirees because equity valuations in our team's view were on the high side. Bond yields were about as low as they could go. And so we argued that people who are just embarking on retirement should be pretty conservative, that they should be thinking not not about 4%, but maybe more like low threes. And when we revisited that research in 2023, we came to a somewhat sunnier conclusion that people could really anchor on, say, a 4% starting withdrawal, and then inflation adjust that dollar amount thereafter, and they would probably be okay taking into account the fact that yields have gone higher and that equity valuations, by while by no means cheap, were still sort of okay. 
So it's something that we plan to continue revisiting annually and adding some additional flourishes in areas that we've been interested in. So annuities, for example, is is an area that we plan to bring forward in our uh, 2024 research. I would think one of the... We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Real big variables is, is taxes, right, on the retirement. And unless you're you know, on the Roth side of things and you got ahead of it, how do you model in tax rates and withdrawals? I mean, that's going to depend upon the presidential cycle and mood. I mean, what, it was in the early 80s, I think, or then that, yeah, at least on the very wealthy, it was like 90%. Or something right. weird like that, right? So so I've got to assume that the biggest variability and error maybe comes on that end. Right. And we do not model in taxes explicitly, in part because the complexion of each retiree's portfolio with respect to it, the tax treatment of the subsequent withdrawals is just going to vary so completely by retiree. So I think what we'll see in the decades ahead is more and more folks retiring with retirement portfolios that are predominantly composed of Roth assets. Today, uh, sort of the baby boomer cohort, you've got a lot of folks retiring with the vast majority of their portfolios in pre-tax assets. So assets where they will pay the full freight, uh, ordinary income tax on their withdrawals. They'll also be subject to required minimum distributions on those withdrawals. So we don't explicitly model in the tax implications, but as you reference, it's super important. And I would argue that this is one reason, you know, I'm an active person in the Bogleheads community and the DIY community, but I do think that as people approach retirement, getting some help on the tax aspect of decumulation is absolutely critical because for a lot of folks, especially those pre-tax retirees, the baby boomer people who have most of their assets in a traditional tax-deferred 401k IRA, those are the people who will probably, when they retire, have a good opportunity to take advantage of conversions of those traditional tax-deferred assets to Roth and kind of that sweet spot after their income has ceased from their job and before those required minimum distributions begin at age 73 is a tremendous window to potentially consider taking some conversions. And the reason is that their income at that life stage is much more within their control than was the case when they were earning an income. When we're earning incomes from our jobs, that the income is what it is. We're not in a position to suppress it. But in those years following retirement, that's an area where a time period when you have a lot of control over your your income. And unfortunately, it coincides with kind of that pent up demand period of people's lives where when they're young retirees, oftentimes health is good. They've got a lot of things that they want to do, a lot of heavy travel perhaps on the agenda. So those are higher spending years. So keeping income down might not be quite 
is simple, but definitely an opportunity to explore with a financial advisor or some sort of tax planning person. So the rule was always, you know, the older you get, the more you want to have your retirement assets and fixed income bond funds or individual bond securities. And I get the sense, maybe I'm wrong, that there's a little bit of a snake bite effect that might have taken place over the last three years where because yields have risen and obviously the underlying on some of these bond funds have just gotten crushed on a relative basis, clearly, because that's how way bonds work, that maybe some older investor near retirement say, you know what, I went through so much pain in bonds, yields are going to keep rising. Let me, the in quote safer way to retire is with more stock, actually, as opposed to more bonds or more fixed income. Talk through that. Is there an element of truth to that? Because as much as everyone rants on the bond bear market from what we've seen in the last three years, listen, I can make an argument we've been in a bond bear market for way longer than that on a real return basis. I mean, there was a time when negative real rates you know, globally were, were at obscene levels. Yeah. I wish I had my finger on what fund flows are telling us, but I think that, you know, you raise a really valid point where you have people who are moving into retirement with very equity heavy portfolios. To me, I think the real alternative they see to fixed income, yes, they like their stocks and they've had a good experience in stocks, but it's really hard to pry people's hands off cash these days where money market yields are as high as they are. You could go on, you know, online and get some sort of online high yield savings account that's going to yield four and a half percent or something like that. Trying to convince someone to move into bonds with the interest rate risk that we saw in 2022 and a yield that is not even better than what you can earn on cash to me that a really tough sell these days. But we do know that, you know, over long periods of time, bonds should have higher post-inflation returns than you'll earn from cash. But I think that's the main area where retirees need convincing to move out of cash and into fixed income. And, you know, to some extent, as you say, to de-risk that equity portfolio, especially given how good their experience has been over the past 15 years since the great financial crisis. Yeah, I've never understood the argument of, you know, all the, in quotes, firepower, all this cash on the sidelines that will then go into equities and cause things to skyrocket even more. There's no, I have not myself, maybe I just haven't looked in the right place. I haven't seen any real evidence that behaviorally that's at all what happens. If you, to your point, if you love cash and you love short duration, you're not going to change. Right. I think a lot of retirees, pre-retirees I talk to do kind of like that barbell where they have their liquidity and their safety and they have equities. But the point you make about flows and trying to figure out whether there's a lot of sort of money sitting on the sidelines, I just think it's impossible to get our arms around. Like we don't know what people are doing. They might be saving for a, you know, a second home or whatever that the cash sitting in people's savings accounts. It's very hard to glean what the potential use of those funds, what that might be. Just to reset the room for the remaining 20 minutes, everybody, please make sure you follow Christine Benz here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live on Apple, YouTube and Spotify. There is this narrative or maybe it's a mood that people have that retirement, ha, that's not going to happen. I can't afford retirement. I'm going to work till I'm dead. And first, unfortunately, sadly, a, a big portion of the population that I think is unequivocally true when you look at, you know, 
emergency funds and cash that people actually have on hand. A lot of that has to do with wealth disparity, obviously. But do you get a sense that there is that that sentiment is really based on reality or is it achievable, you know, at a, at a moderate withdrawal rate to legitimately not outlive your assets? Well, I like the idea of someone approaching retirement holistically where they're factoring in their social security climbing decisions for people of more modest means, social security for all of us really, but especially people of more modest means, social security is a linchpin of their retirement career. And and oftentimes the best approach there is to consider delaying social security with an eye toward enlarging future benefits. The problem is that many people just simply need the money, that they need to retire for whatever reason. So I always get a little nervous when I talk to people where they tell me that that's their plan, that they can't make the, the math add up for their retirement. So their plan is just to continue working in perpetuity. The risk is when we look at the data, we see that there's a disconnect between people's stated retirement dates And when they actually retire, that when we monitor those same retirees into the future, we see that people tend to think that they'll be able to work longer than they are able to do. And there are a lot of reasons why this happens. We know that ageism is a thing in our culture. We know that people encounter health issues or their spouses or parents encounter health issues that make working not a possibility. We also know that people have physically demanding jobs that are simply difficult to do after a certain age. So a lot of factors conspire against people's plans to continue working longer, which is one reason why it, I, I often quote uh, Morningstar contributor Mark Miller, who always says, it's a worthy aspiration, but it's not a plan. If your only plan is to continue working and you're someone who's moving into your late 60s, investigate what your backup plan might be. Oftentimes, that's are you willing to consider some trade-offs in terms of lifestyle considerations? So can you downsize your home? Can you potentially move to a cheaper part of the country? Obviously, those are huge lifestyle decisions, but for people with really tight finances where working longer is their only backup plan, they should start looking at some of the lifestyle and, and the spending decisions that they might make. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. had maybe over a year ago, I had Grover Norquist on one of these spaces and uh, he had mentioned, you know, how there seems to be this trend where a lot of states are going to basically have very low to zero tax rate because they're trying to attract all of that retiring money. Because to your point, the trade-off is real, but it's one that a lot of people probably have to make. I mean, retiring in New York City, where I am, is very different than retiring in Tennessee or Florida or Texas. And it's a very hard decision because obviously then you know, what happens to if you have kids, what happens right. to that family and you're in your final stages. So you have to really make it very attractive, right, for that to be the case. But of the sort of primary trade-off, is the state that you live in the biggest determinant of the likelihood of outliving or not? I'm trying to get to sort of where does, 
where's the meat on the bone, mm-hmm. right? For trying to not outlive your assets. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that sometimes people focus too narrowly on that state tax issue and they're not thinking holistically because we're seeing an interesting phenomenon, obviously, where retirees seem to be moving to Sunbelt parts of the country, coastal areas where, yes, in some of those states, you have very very favorable taxes for retirement, but you also have skyrocketing property insurance costs. So I like the idea of people doing a full audit of what it costs to live in a, a given place rather than being overly swayed by, you know, just the tax picture. Another thing is that, yes, there are the state tax rates and you may, might have high tax states. Illinois, where I live, is one where, yes, it's a, especially in the Chicago area, state with fairly high property taxes. And we have a, a flat tax, a flat state income tax, but we do not tax retirement income. So if I were not, if I were just focusing narrowly on what I pay in taxes today, I'd think, yeah, I want to get the heck out of Illinois. Maybe I still will, but I wouldn't have adequately factored in that Illinois doesn't tax retirement income. So get get your arms around the full myriad of expenses. Oftentimes, I think a really great strategy is for someone to maybe stay within the same general geographic area where they already live, where their support network is, where their kids are and friends are, but maybe just move to a cheaper home or a, a cheaper location within that general general geographic area. So if you're someone who's retired and you're not commuting anymore, into the city. Well, maybe you can move way out on that train line where, yes, you can still get into downtown for doctor appointments or to go to the opera or whatever it is that you do, but you're not paying the really high property taxes that you were paying when you lived closer to that urban center. So I like the idea of people exploring the whole range of trade-offs as retirement approaches. So here's the thing. (laughs) I don't know if people really, even if they wanted to do a full audit, know what's involved with that and I, I'm personally, I'm cynical and skeptical of attention spans. You know, it's, people would rather watch a cat video than read a prospectus, right? I mean, let alone take a real full accounting. And obviously there are services, certified financial planners that people can turn to, but you know, that there's a cost to that too. How do we get more people to be aware of the financial planning side? You know, I always think about this in terms of what you can control. So as a portfolio manager or somebody as a trader, I can't control the value of my portfolio. Some people will say, what do you mean? A, a portfolio manager saying you can't control the value of your portfolio? Of course, because if I could control it, I'd never have a down day, right? I can't control, you know, the day-to-day or the weekly or even the very long term. It is what it is. We take risks and hope it plays out. But you can't control, you know, your financial situation, right? But it requires a wholly different mindset and effort. How do we get people to to focus more on that rather than a chart? I like the idea of, uh, and I sound like I'm a shill for the advice industry, but I really think that retirement is such a complex financial problem that even very savvy investors probably have some sort of a blind spot with respect to retirement planning. What I would say is that people need to understand that there are a lot of different ways to pay for advice. So I would, and I, you know, I shouldn't extrapolate my personal situation, but I am good at managing investment assets. It's what I did for a lot of my career. So I'm fine managing my portfolio, but I need some help on the tax planning side. And so my husband and I hire a financial planner to help us with that. And they 
raised some great points of ways that we can save taxes with our plan. So we pay hourly for that financial planner. They're complete aces in terms of understanding tax planning. They have access to very high caliber software. So we pay for that advice by it to get help in areas where we don't have the skill set. Other people may be more comfortable in other areas. But I, what I would say is this idea that you've got to pay an advisor 1% or 1.5% year in and year out in perpetuity. That's not necessarily going to be the right call for some people. And you can pay for advice in different different ways. You can pay a firm like Vanguard to use a personal advisory service, which I think is like 30 or 35 basis points where they'll keep your portfolio in sort of a plain vanilla portfolio. They'll periodically rebalance you and give you some financial planning advice that can be money well spent. So it's not all in where you're paying an advisor to oversee your portfolio year in and year out, you can get advice more cheaply. And I would urge people to explore that. I wonder if you, if you've maybe given thought to, you know, if we are in this AI industrial revolution, so to speak, if that, if that ended up being more pervasive in trying to help people understand their retirement situation, I am skeptical on that because no matter how good AI is, they're not going to sue software. They're going to sue, they're going to sue the individual giving the advice. In other words, you know, the liability aspect, I'd argue actually you want to go to an individual that you can sue as opposed to software, which you can't see, right? Just from an accountability perspective. But any thoughts on that? I mean, it seems like, you know, I mean, I've seen some people make that argument, right? That you're going to see an entire prospectus written by AI, an entire financial plan created by AI. Is that going to be a, a, a good thing or a bad thing? I almost feel like you need to have that human element no matter what. Yeah, I think that there will continue to be a value accorded to the human input, mainly because the behavioral part of this is so huge that we're all wired so differently. I was recently talking to a friend who's currently between jobs and has a decent sized investment portfolio and also has a mortgage. And I said, you know, if it were me, and she's a fairly new mortgage, uh, you know, maybe five and a quarter percent or something like that. I said, if it were me, I think I would probably take a portion of that portfolio and put it to, I would just pay off my mortgage. And she was completely averse to that idea. It was so interesting to me. For me, it seemed like, oh gosh, at our age and, you know, given that she's probably, uh, I don't know how far from retirement to not many years from retirement, that's the first thing I would do. And that would bring me a lot of peace of mind. For her, the response was completely different. She said, well, that would blow this hole in my portfolio. I'd feel so awful. So it's just so interesting how one decision that was seemed completely like it would impart peace of mind to me would not work for someone else. And so I think that there will always be an input or, you know, sort of a place for that behaviorally sensitive advisor. And then the other thing I would say is just a logistical hurdle to AI really solving retirement decumulation is that most of us have several jobs over our career. So we're carrying around these multiple retirement accounts and it's just difficult to get all of those accounts fed into a system that in turn could tell you what to do with those accounts. So I think that's just a logistical impediment that unfortunately is here to stay because we have people's retirement accounts so tethered to wherever they're working. And I think that creates a challenge for whether 
automated systems can truly solve retirement decumulation. Maybe there's something I'm not thinking of, but right now that's a huge pain point. You use the word tethered, which I think is interesting when it comes to retirement accounts, because, you know, on a side note, right, or separate note, I get the sense that a lot of retirement accounts are tethered to Vanguard passive market cap weighted strategies, Mm -hmm. right, that most people are indexed, you know, to something that effectively is the S&P 500. And while there might be a fund that claims to be active because they're overweighting or underweighting Apple by 50 basis points, in reality, the R squared is still you know, 99, right? So, which by the way, side note is why the whole passive active debate has always driven me crazy because the, the fee point is valid for active largely because the active's not really active in terms of active share, but that's a separate discussion. And given that you mentioned the active contribution on the Boglehead side, I'm fairly sure before he passed that Bogle alluded to the idea that passive has gone too far. I wonder your thoughts on that because there is an argument to be made that you know, if you don't have active players, kind of goes to the growth and cyclic paradox from the early 80s, you end up having actually a very inefficient market. Yeah, it's something that I know our team has been watching closely, whether there is the possibility that very strong flows to passive are kind of mutating the way that the market is behaving. And assets and passive strategies did recently surpass more than half of the market. So I think that, you know, it's something that we'll be watching, but I have been wondering, you know, is the ascendance of the Magnificent Seven, for example, the fact that that has coincided with very strong flows to passively managed cap-weighted products, is there some interplay there? It's hard to convince me that there's not something going on, but I don't study this in depth in my day job, but it's it's definitely something that I've considered. Yeah, I, I've joked, although I don't even know if it's a joke anymore, but yeah, to the extent that market cap weighting creates sort of a, a self-fulfilling concentration in a select number of large cap names, then the, even the narrative that the Fed saves the market really means that they're inherently saving just a select number of stocks, which has all kinds of, I think, interesting ramifications, if that's the case. Exactly. And, you know, one thing I would say is even passive true believers, people who love passive cap-weighted strategies because of their very low costs and the fact that you're not second-guessing anything. I think a great thing to revisit if you're one of those people is look at your international weighting today. Because if you have been just taking the path of least resistance and haven't really been tipping any additional funds into international passive, so maybe you have Vanguard total international stock market or whatever, if you haven't been adding that, you've been, I think, inadvertently tilting toward growth, tilting toward U.S., obviously U.S. mega caps. Non-U.S. to me looks like a way to play value and a way to play some mean reversion. So that's something that I would be looking at, even if you're just sort of the three fund person where you've got total stock, total bond, total international. Look at that U.S. versus non-U.S. because I think that's a way to perhaps ensure that your portfolio isn't just fighting the last war. Yeah, and I, I will say, I mean, I, I look at a lot of different ETFs I write about on Seeking Alpha as an example, and I'm always blown away how ETFs that that should not be uh, an S&P 500-like fund or should not be a tech fund, if the top 10 names tend to be the same top 10 names, right? Even though the name of the fund and the mandate would suggest it's something different. I, I don't know if people really, I don't have a sense of that, really appreciate how Wall Street has created products 
that all have are meant to look different, but in reality, the drivers are all the same, meaning, you know, the factor exposure to the idiosyncratic risk beyond pervasive at this point. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I, it, in my career, it wasn't at all unusual to in a period like this and the, when I was a fund analyst sort of in that late 90s period where we'd look at ostensibly value funds and it's like, whoa, hold on there. You've got like Dell at the top of your portfolio. You've got these, you know, technology stocks and and other stocks that hadn't traditionally been the domain of value managers and had performed very well. So, you know, managers certainly do that type of performance chasing as well. So it's something to watch out for. It's interesting that you say that you observe this in the passive space as well. It's, it's crazy. People really need to know what's in their portfolios. Christine, for those who want to track more of your thought, more of your work, I know you have a podcast as well, but talk about the different ways that people can find some of your content. Sure. Thank you so much, Michael. So I'm on Morningstar.com regularly. I write columns, usually a couple types of times a week. I do videos. And as you mentioned, I do a podcast called The Long View, which is an interview format with a thought leader in personal finance or investing or retirement planning. I'm on Twitter fairly frequently. I enjoy our FinTwit community on Twitter. So I'm at Christine underscore Benz there. I have mixed feelings about the FinTwit community, but uh, I'm, I'm with you on that. This is a great conversation. Again, folks, please make sure you give Christine a follow. Check out her work and podcast. Thank you, Christine. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Michael. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.